Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. I don't know how many of you uh, get the uh, Fargo form these days since it isn't uh, delivered to your house anymore very, uh, or it's a day late and so on, but uh, I still read it online fairly regularly and uh, the Dear Annie column this last week, I had a very interesting letter, maybe some of you spotted it. It went like this. Dear Annie, I attend a small church where the congregation does not exceed 12 members. And so on any given Sunday, there are at least nine of us in attendance, including the pastor and first lady. <laughs> we follow the government-recommended COVID-19 social distance guidelines. I am hearing impaired, and wear a digital hearing aid. And there is an older member who beats a tambourine at the top or at the drop of a hat during worship service. And since I'm not impaired by volume but by tone, the tambourine sounds more pronounced to the point that it gives me a quick migraine and makes me dizzy. Should I speak with the pastor so he can instruct her to tone it down or should I go elsewhere? I can't seem to enjoy service like this, especially when it's already hard to hear a person speaking or praying while they're masked. She beats it during prayer, too. I really believe the tambourine lady knows this annoys me. Dizzy and annoyed church member. Annie responds, uh, dear Dizzy. And I, I shorten her response here, but she says something like this. Yes, you should tell your pastor how the tambourine is giving you migraines and making you dizzy, but don't assume this parishioner is out to purposely annoy you. <laughs> well, I am hoping that this letter didn't give anyone here any ideas. Um, congregations have enough difficulties without having parishioners purposely stirring up trouble in the ranks. Uh, but the letter reminds me of something in that, and that is that the devil is out to destroy the Christian congregation, and sometimes he uses ridiculous annoyances between parishioners to stir up trouble inside. And other times, as we'll see in our text today, he uses tribulation and persecution from people that are outside the congregation to try to destroy it. And yet we also will see that is limited in what he can do. Last week we were looking in the book of Revelation at one of the letters from Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and they are letters that were given then to the Apostle John in a vision while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And these are letters then about the future of each of these congregations. And the Apostle John was one who was a very close disciple of Jesus, and and he wrote what we have in our Bibles in the, in the Gospel of John and, and also the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and then also the book of Revelation. And the letter we're looking at today then is a letter to the church at Smyrna. It's a city that was about 35 miles north of Ephesus. And I invite you to look with me at, at Revelation chapter 2 then verses 8 through 11. And would you stand now in reverence to God's word? <clears throat> To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, 
I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander by, which, by those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let us pray. Lord God, as we meditate on this letter to the church at Smyrna, we pray that uh, you would help us to understand the situation that was there. And Lord, that you also would apply this to our hearts and lives in our congregation and that you would encourage us as we look to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. The uh, city of Smyrna was a port city on the western shore of what's modern-day Turkey. And and by 300 AD, it it became a model city in the Roman Empire with a famous stadium and and a a library and, and the largest theater in all of Asia Minor. It also was, uh, was famous as the birthplace of uh, the epic poet Homer. And, and there were temples in Smyrna to a couple of Greek gods, or the Greek god of Zeus and the goddess Sibyl. Many folks at Smyrna tended to be very strongly loyal to Rome. And, and there was also a large Jewish population in the city which was actively hostile toward Christianity. And somehow, though, a Christian congregation developed there at Smyrna, likely as God's word spread out from Ephesus, uh, just 35 miles away. And, and so John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then records this letter from Jesus Christ to that church at Smyrna. And it's interesting to me that, that uh, somebody who was a disciple of John, um, named Polycarp, served then later as a pastor at Smyrna there for many years. And, and you're going to hear more about Polycarp later today. Well, as I mentioned already, the speaker in these verses is Jesus Christ. And as with each of the seven letters um, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this letter is from Jesus, and he starts the letter then by identifying some things about himself. Last week when we looked at the letter to the church at Philadelphia, um, he described himself as he who is holy and true and who has the key of David. Here now in verse 8, In this letter, he describes himself as the first and the last. And this is similar to wording that is elsewhere in Revelation, where Jesus says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Or where he says he is the beginning and the end. Scripture reveals to us that Jesus was there at the very beginning of the world, and actually that he created it, and will someday return to usher in the end of the world as we know it. And so in the course of human history, then, he is the first and he is the last, the beginning and the end of God's master plan for all of humanity. I like what Lenski says as he elaborates on who Jesus is, then. He says this, Jesus the glorious, mighty Jesus whom John sees, stands at both ends, embracing, governing, controlling the whole, This is his stupendous greatness, absolute supremacy, infinite glory. Yes, there is no one who compares to him. 
He also says about himself here, he is the one who was dead, was dead, and has come to life. And here John is declaring then two historical facts that he would have witnessed with his own eyes. He was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, dying, and said that prayer, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and then breathed his last. And he knew then that Jesus was quite dead, and his body was taken down from that cross and was laid then in a nearby tomb. And John was also there then in that upper room with the other disciples when Jesus appeared alive again three days later and also ten days later. And he was there when Jesus appeared to the eleven disciples later at the Sea of Galilee. And he was there when Jesus ascended back into heaven. John knew the truth of Jesus' description of himself to the church at Smyrna as the one who is the first and the last and who was dead and has come to life again. And that's the one who speaks here and, and hears his message. He says, first of all, I know your tribulation. Now, tribulation uh, is a word that describes pressure or troubles and afflictions. And, and we all encounter them. Various kinds of pressures and troubles in our lives, uh, unless you're one that is an exception to that. Anyone here that doesn't have any pressures or troubles in your life? Well then... This statement is true for all of us as well here. Jesus says here, as he says to the Christians at Smyrna, Jesus, the all-knowing Son of God, knows your tribulation as well. However it is, or whatever it is that you're going through in your life then, these days, including even some of those maybe inner struggles that nobody else knows about or you don't talk to anybody about, Jesus says, I know about it. I know your tribulation. Well, what tribulation was it that Jesus knew the Christians at Smyrna were encountering or were going to encounter in the future? He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and poverty and the slander by some Jews, and I also know that some of you are going to be thrown into prison. I want to set the scene for some of that here today. John records the, the words of Revelation during a time when there was intense persecution of Jews and Christians at the hands of the Romans. Some historians believe it was during the reign of Domitian, who, like Nero before him, was very dictator-like in his rule, he made a lot of executive orders rather than letting the Senate have much control. Power corrupts, and absolute power absolutely corrupts. Isn't that how the saying goes? That's still true today. Well, Domitian also held up his... Uh, Dead relatives, so to speak, he'd say, on the level of gods, um, to be worshipped. And, and so he, he built temples to them. I think a son and a wife and some others, um, he built temples to honor them. And as I understood, um, he, he was opposed to all monotheistic or religions because he believed in many gods and that, that those who had died then became gods. And so he was opposed to that and... and, and uh, he wanted people to worship those multiple gods. And since both Christians and Jews believe in worshiping only one god, then they were groups that were subject to persecution. It included heavier taxation at first and, and harsher persecution as time went on, and even death in the later years of his reign. And according to some historians, he made worship of this emperor cult then something that was required by law, and refusal to do so then was punishable by imprisonment or death. And it's in this kind of environment then that many Christians would have found it a real challenge to, to live 
and to earn a decent living, um, perhaps sometimes having to hide out from authorities. Uh, being, being openly Christian might have also subjected the, them even to some mob looting of their homes and places of business. And Jesus says to them here then, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know your physical poverty, but you are rich spiritually. Jesus in the Gospels talks about what true riches are. Um, being riches not from this earth that, that can be gone in a moment, but, but treasures in heaven that will never fade away. And Jesus, for instance, tells us in the Gospels in of, of the, that example of the rich man whose land produced so much that he, did, he ran out of room for storage. And, and so he built larger barns to store more. And then he said to himself as he sat back looking at all, you know, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul will be demanded of you, and as for all that you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relationship to God. Well, so back here to Revelation 2, then Jesus is reminding the congregation at Smyrna that though they don't have a lot of earthly wealth, they have something far better. The promise of eternal wealth in heaven that no one can take away from them. So he says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you're really rich. Then he goes on to say, I know the blasphemy or, or the slander of, of the fake Jews. Well, who are the fake Jews? Jesus describes them here as, as the synagogue of Satan. And apparently there was at least one Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, and many of the Jews who were part of that were fiercely opposed to Christianity. And, and Jesus says about them here then in verse 9, they say that they're Jews, but they are not really. Their claim is that they're Jews because of birth, descendants of Abraham. But you see, it's possible to have Jewish DNA and still not be following the God of your ancestor Abraham. Just like it's possible for us today. Maybe you're a descendant of God-fearing Scandinavian ancestors. Doesn't mean that things are right in your heart with the Lord that they worshipped. And so Jesus says about these Jews, and they say that they're Jews, but they're not. Reality, they are of the synagogue of Satan. All who are opposed to Jesus Christ are then of the devil. And remember, it was the Jewish religious leaders that condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy, claiming that he was God. And Jesus turns in the table on these Jews here, and he says that they are the slanderers, they are the blasphemers. The, the liars who followed their father, the devil, the father of lies. And he, Jesus, is the true one. One other thing I see mentioned here about the tribulation that the Christians there at Smyrna were expecting to encounter, and that's that some of them were going to be thrown in prison for their faith. But did you notice who Jesus said was going to cast them into prison? He doesn't mention the Jews or the Romans, but the devil is being behind that. Tribulation for Christians ultimately comes not just from people, but from the devil. And I think it's important that we grasp that. And some of the craziness that's going on in our country today, we may blame people and so on, but, but it is the devil using people to deceive many and lead many away from the truth and into chaos. Verse 10 here, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, 
So you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. And it's not clear just what that 10 days is about. Some commentators suggest it's, it probably was the time that they were going to be imprisoned and after that they could actually expect execution. And Jesus is telling them then to prepare for that time of tribulation in prison when you're going to be abused and mistreated there and perhaps even question your faith in God completely because he let you be there. But he goes on to say to them, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear the devil casting you into prison. You're going to be tested there for 10 days, but don't fear even if that leads to death. But instead, he says, be faithful even unto death. I mentioned to you earlier Polycarp. Um, do you know who he was? He was a disciple of the Apostle John who became a pastor and, and bishop there at the Christian church in Smyrna. And he was in that role for quite a number of years. And so in about 160 AD, we have record of this, Polycarp was 86 years old. He was highly revered by the Christian church in the area as a wise and learned teacher and church leader. And the Romans were persecuting Christians to the point of asking them to deny their faith in Jesus Christ or be killed. And they were out looking to find Polycarp because they knew of his faith. And there were some friends of Polycarp who hid him away at a farmhouse. But the authorities eventually found him. And when they came for him, instead of resisting his captors, he invited them to come in. And he called for food to be brought to them. And they sat and ate and drank. And then he, he asked them, for, for one hour of uninterrupted prayer before they would take him away. They granted that wish to this old man and, and uh, he prayed for an hour and it kept going longer after that as he was praying out loud and these captors are listening to his prayer. Probably they even regretted coming for such an old godly man. However, they did arrest him and they brought him to an arena where, where they were making sport out of killing Christians. And the proconsul tried to convince Polycarp, just curse Christ and you'll be set free. Polycarp's reply was this. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season. And after a little while, it's quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear, refusing to burn incense to the royal emperor. And as this took place, he prayed, and his prayer was this, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. how in the world could he so calmly face a torturous death? He knew something. He knew that though they could destroy his physical body, they could not harm his eternal soul. He knew that there was something far worse than even physical death, and that especially being the eternal punishment of hell itself. And you know, all unbelievers ought to fear dying because they will then have to answer to their Creator for all of their own sins and, and for rejecting Jesus, the one who is the way of forgiveness of those sins. And they will instead have to bear their own punishment, which will never end. 
But the believer in Jesus Christ, on the other hand, need not face that judgment. But as John writes in his gospel, the believer in Christ has passed out of death and into life, eternal life in heaven with the Savior. And, and that's why for the believer, over and over, we can take comfort in verses of Scripture that remind us of, of this do not fear. Uh, one count says there's 103 times in the Bible that it tells us, fear not or, or be not afraid. And, and so Jesus says to us today, no matter what the future holds for you, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear anything that the devil will throw at you. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And remember who's, who's talking here. This is Jesus, that one who was dead and has come to life. He was once dead. His body was cold and stiff, no longer breathing. And he has come to life. No longer is he cold and stiff, but, he is, but, but warm blood again pumped through his veins. His lungs worked again and, and he breathed freely and he again spoke to and he taught those disciples about all that God's plan involved for their sake, him coming to this earth and going through what he did. And then he ascended back into heaven from whence he came. And if Jesus could raise himself from the dead and conquer death in that way, then does that not verify his identity? Does that not tell us that he is deity? And can he not also then give life to those who also were dead? Jesus says that in, in John 11. Where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And so that even though we can all expect to die and have our cold body be placed in the ground someday, that promises for us we too will live again. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians about that, that there's coming that day when the trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are believers and are still alive will meet them together in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. And that is when this last part of Jesus' message then to the church at Smyrna will be shown to be true. Where it says in verse 11, He who overcomes in this life shall not be hurt by the second death. Now what's that? Well, the first death is whenever that time comes that you breathe your last breath on this earth. But the second death it is a Jewish rabbinic term for, for the death of the wicked in the world to come. And Revelation chapter 20 uh, talks about that, explains it more. There it says, And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And those are some sobering words. Sobering words for anybody that is not ready. And you see, the devil would like to take as many as he can with him to the lake of fire. But that, not, that need not be any of us. If we will admit our sins and look to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, we, we then become part of the church militant here on this earth that some, someday is the church triumphant in, in glory in heaven. And so we don't want to let the devil succeed in his plans to harm the work of the Christian church. And so by God's grace, then we, we put up with those little annoyances with each other in church, like the tambourine player that didn't know when to quit. And we gather for worship together. 
to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to hear his holy word. And in verse 11 here, Jesus again reminds us of who this letter is to. It's not just to that church at Smyrna some 2,000 years ago, but the audience is to all who have ears to hear. And again, as I look around, I see a lot of ears. I don't see any missing. If you have ears to hear, then God gave them to you for that reason, that you would hear his word today, that you would put your trust in his son Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin in this life and for eternal life and glory when this life is over. And then whatever tribulations are going to go on in the meantime, Jesus says to us today, I know your situation, I know your tribulation, the pressures and the troubles that you're facing now, and worse ones maybe that might be coming in the future. I know it all. I'm the first. I'm the last. The beginning and the end. And so the poor church that's really rich is the one where there are sinners who know for sure that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And who through no merit of their own then anticipate being given someday the crown of life in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word today and, and uh, how you sought to encourage the church in Smyrna going through times of persecution and looking at it even getting worse in the future by reminding of that eternal perspective. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would encourage each one here today too, that no matter what they're going through in their life, they would know that you are aware of their situation and you are there to help them through it. And that some of those things you allow in our lives are partially so that we would have that eternal perspective. We'd look beyond the troubles of this life to what you prepared in glory for those who know and love you. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, there wouldn't be anybody here that would be fearful of their, their time to come to breathe their last, but they would know in their heart things are right with you because they've trusted in Jesus as their Savior to forgive their sins and cleanse them and change them and, and uh, to give them eternal life in heaven someday. And, Lord, we ask that as we gather for communion today, that uh, you would remind us and of, of what you've done, that we might know that. And uh, thank you for your death on the cross for us, that we could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.